Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Matt Leach and I'm here in London. Before we go any further, I need to give a shout out to Streamtime, who's a major supporter of ADR and everything we do. It's great to have a partnership with a team that really gets the creative industries and is actively trying to improve not just how we manage our time, but also our well-being and mental health. If you're interested, just go to streamtime.net, get all the information and a free account to try out the software. So on this episode, I'm very lucky to be speaking to Pip Jameson from The Dots. Hello. Hello. <laughs> wow, it's really good to see you. For anyone who doesn't know Pip, she was named by Creative Review as one of the top 50 leaders in the UK. She was also named by the Sunday Times as top 100 disruptive entrepreneurs, British interactive media in the top 100, founder of The Dots, which was dubbed the LinkedIn for the no-collar professionals, but it's really much bigger than that. Its service is about 300,000 now? Yeah, we're over 400,000 now. No. I know. I get scared of saying stats because once I you don't. say that they're out there <laughs> and then you grow and you're like, wait, we're way bigger. <laughs> so in the UK, and we're going to talk about because I, I think there's plans or hopes to kind of move out mm. of the UK as well. At the close of 2007, you'd raised over 4 million pounds mm. of investment. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Does that feel like a win or is that enormous amount of pressure? Uh, kind of both, I guess. I mean, you know, raising money is hell for any founder. I, you know, we're on a mission to take on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm kind of come to peace with the fact I'm going to be raising investment probably for every two years for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so you have to get comfortable with it. I, I think what's interesting is that I've come to realize that it can be particularly challenging for female founders. So right. here in the UK, only 9% of angel funding goes to female founders. And actually at my level, only 2.3%. So, so I'm kind of proud that I've managed to break through the glass ceiling but also at the same time I'm aware that it can be a bit it's challenging for every founder but it can be particularly challenging for women. I've noticed in a lot of stuff it always points you out as a female entrepreneur and I always thought that was a bit weird like you know because you would never get like a male or this is a male entrepreneur. (laughs) Do you find that weird or do you think that's important that it's kind of yeah I mean I wish we lived in a world where it's not and we we didn't have to put those labels on you know uh, the reality is though is you know, I'm a big believer in if you can see it, you can be it. And so if I can inspire that next generation, I'm happy to wear labels, I guess, because right now we have an amazing wave of women coming through. And when I started, there just weren't that many um, to aspire to be. And so, you know, there were maybe a handful, like five, like Holly Tucker, who started not on the high street, Tamara, who started Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and, you know, Martha Lane Fox, who started not, not on the high street. So, you know, there is now hundreds of me, which is great, which is inspiring thousands of the next gen. And then yep. the next gen, there'll be thousands of them, which will inspire tens of thousands. So I'm, I'm kind of, I don't mind the labels. Did you know you got a Wikipedia page? <laughs> I know, it's the most mental Isn't thing. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Do you know they got my age wrong? Oh, did they? <laughs> <laughs> so it's living proof, don't re- Believe, believe everything you read on Wikipedia. Um, that was actually started by an amazing woman called Jess Ward. And Jess, uh, she writes a Wikipedia page every day, and she has done for the last three days wow. of all women in STEM. Um, so she is a doctor and realized that when she was researching women in tech, there were just no pages. So literally, that's her project. And one day she wrote about me, and it was amazing. And she got my year, I'm a year younger than I actually am, which is really <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Always 21. Always 21. So how do you find about that? Like, was it just someone told you or... Yeah, Jess Jess actually tweeted me and it was just this mental sort of 
yeah, it was just this mental experience. I, said, but, yeah, I mean, she properly researched, you know, my whole life is on there. And yeah, it, it's just amazing what she's doing through the industry. Because again, if you can see it, you can be it. And Wikipedia was very underrepresentative in terms of amazing women on there. And so Jess is kind of changing that whole balance, That's which awesome. is incredible. <laughs> so let's dig into your past a little bit, yeah. because I think something that I don't know uh, is your journey into the creative industries is, is not a very easy one to work out is it because <laughs> you actually did first class master's degree in economics yes <laughs> and actually your first jobs were all for the british government weren't they yeah yeah i mean it was funny because my dad was in the creative industries so right. i grew up in the creative industries and i think there was this expectation that i'd always follow the family path and so my way of being a rebel is i went to uni and did <laughs> economics and maths i think i just wanted to kind of prove that i could do something different and yeah i ended up doing really well I mean it massively to the surprise of my my whole family because you know I'm really I'm really dyslexic and you know there was when I was younger no one thought I'd even you know go finish school let alone get to university so to get into uni and then yeah I ended up getting a first which was mental my parents just bored their eyes out of my grad graduation the whole way through and I actually emailed my dad when I got my first and I said I told you I was a genius but um, <laughs> I misspelled genius and I spelled it Guinness. <laughs> and so um, my dad still got the email. It's like framed at home. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a bit tangential. And then, um, yeah, I, I joined the government, the fast stream civil service here in the UK because uh, I had aspirations to change the world. And it was back in the Tony Blair years of policy was meant to be based on evidence and it was this brilliant time to be an economist and actually it's really challenging in government and I'm really glad I'm not there right now um, obviously with Brexit but I jumped ship and then I joined the creative industry so I was working for the Brit Awards here in London and then for Viacom primarily MTV and Nickelodeon um, in Australia and New Zealand. So there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to dig into yeah. there but let's start with being dyslexic. Yeah. How what did you put in place to kind of help you get through what I imagine is a very hard course. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who's dyslexic or has a child who's dyslexic who's listening to this, I, I, it, there's this like turning point that happens when you're a kid, and for me it was around seven where I suddenly was doing okay in school, and then suddenly I just I just didn't understand anything. I I just fell completely behind. Trying to read was just this. It just felt felt like this crazy. Just my brain couldn't get its head around it. And it's really tough because, I mean, you know, I'm of the age where dyslexia back then wasn't really known. So straight away, kind of teachers are just thinking I'm stupid. Um, uh, And my amazing mother um, was just not having any of it. She was like, that's not the case. So mum was actually working for a charity here in the UK called New Kids on the Block before the really bad band, (laughs) New Kids on the Block. Um, Speak for yourself. (laughs) One of my favourites. Do you know what? I probably have a record somewhere. Um, And she was working for this charity doing educational puppet shows, going into schools, educating kids on disabilities. And so mum had these giant puppets and they were uh, teaching kids about cerebral palsy and it was about you know cerebral palsy might be a physical disability but they're just like us while mum was working for this charity she went to this talk on this thing called dyslexia and suddenly went oh my god that's what Pip's got and I was one of the lucky ones I mean I got help really from the age of seven and I went to one of the first dyslexic schools in the country and I mean I I always reflect that for me, you know, for every one of me, there's tens of thousands that we left behind of my generation. And it was really hard. I mean, I didn't learn to read till I was 11. I mean, I still struggle now. My reading speed's like half that of a normal average human, I guess. I have to get my 
emails proofread by uh, my team or my husband. Um, at the end of my email signature, it says delightfully dyslexic, excuse typos, which <laughs> I put in because I just got to the point where I couldn't have everything proofread. And it's funny how having that on an email, suddenly people go from like criticizing commas being in the wrong place or misspellings to actually empathy. And loads of my community have now adopted the email. So it's oh, lovely right. I get emails back from delightfully dyslexic, <laughs> excuse typos. So yeah, it was it was really... It was really tough and just a lot, a lot of hard graft. But I guess of late, I've come to realize actually dyslexia is my, my superpower. And someone asked me, would you stop being dyslexic? And I, I, I actually wouldn't give it up for the world. And the reason being is I st- I've started kind of looking into it and realized that actually 30% of entrepreneurs are dyslexic yep. and 40% of self-made millionaires. So, um, sorry, 35% of uh, entrepreneurs are dyslexic and 40% of self-made millionaires. That's a dyslexia, by the way. We might have lap numbers sometimes. Um, and that's mental. It means that we're more likely to become entrepreneurs. And when we are entrepreneurs, we're more successful. And the reason being, actually, so people like, you know, obviously the most famous dyslexics, Richard Branson, but Steve Jobs was dyslexic, Holly Tucker's dyslexic, Anita Broderick, who started The Body Shop, was dyslexic, Einstein was dyslexic. There's actually key characteristics that make us um, really good entrepreneurs and actually really good creatives. So one, we just, we're highly creative. And the yeah. reason being is Yale did this piece of research, which was amazing, which found that we actually have wider peripheral vision. So we're taking in more data and more information and seeing the world kind of more broadly than a normal human. So what that means is we synthesize more easily into creativity and gut feeling and connect the dots, I guess, a bit better. So, you know, we've got high levels of perseverance. Um, and they think the reason being is we struggled so much when we were young, we kind of learned that hard graph can, can yeah. win. And we also have high levels of empathy. And again, they're not completely sure why, but they think maybe because we were outsiders when we were younger, we empathize with other outsiders, which actually makes us really good leaders because we generally care about the people we work with. And all of those traits make us great creatives Mm. or they make us great um, entrepreneurs. And so, yeah, I'm I'm really blessed to have dyslexia. (laughs) Jumping back again, moving to the Brit Awards. So what what was that decision about? Well, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I mean, was... an awesome job. So. Yeah, I mean, it was an awesome job. I was, yeah, I was working for the Home Office at the time here in the UK under an amazing guy called David Blunkett. So David Blunkett was a, a blind politician here in the UK. And actually, just a slight ta- tangent, but I think what I learned from David is he was a genius because of his blindness, not mm. despite of it. Saying that, like, I was so frustrated in government. I mean, I was stuck behind a computer the whole time and I'm definitely a people person and it was also that time when you know politicians were making up policy and they were leaning on us to kind of tweak our assumptions to validate the policy and that didn't ethically sit right with me and so I was very lucky my dad used to work in the creative industries he worked in music and so I went to dad to I want to I want a job get me out of here (laughs) and I guess I learned another lesson in my life, which was how closed the creative industries was. I mean, I got my job at the Brit Awards because of my dad. Mm -hmm. And again, for every one of me, there's loads of amazingly talented people that never get that initial foot in the door. And, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, I worked my bloody ass off. (laughs) And, and, you know, I... I, I made a huge success of it, but so could have someone else. And yep. they wouldn't have had that same 
opportunity. I mean, saying that, it did take me about 10 years to get on the same salary I was as an economist in the creative <laughs> industries. But I experienced for my first time in my life just happiness in work, you know, that joy of creating something and enjoying going to work every day and enjoying the people you're working with. And, and yeah, I suddenly was like, I've kind of found my, I found my home, I guess. And then from there it was... I, lo I love the fact that your dad, you know, he kind of stuck with your rebellion. He, <laughs> he always knew you were going to come back. He did. <laughs> yeah, it should have been that total, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> you were always going to work in creative industries. <laughs> so at some point you found yourself at MTV, and, and I've, I've read quite a bit about this in that you talked about that you realised that you were hiring all the same people, mm. and that's kind of where the dots started to percolate, I guess. Yeah, it was kind of twofold, like on the on the kind of client side, I guess, or the companies. So we now have over 10,000 companies that use us to hire. Um, from that side, at MTV, it was a nightmare. We were just hiring mates and mates. Um, yeah. And it was the easiest way to hire. But what I experienced firsthand was that when everyone is the same, you don't come up with different solutions. Yeah. And so that's really dangerous for creativity. And MTV's output just started becoming really samey. I think really that was the beginning of the end for MTV. Yeah. It's our differences that bring brilliant new innovation and ideas to the table. And I was hiring a lot of people while I was at MTV in New Zealand, and I just wanted a different way. I wanted a place where I could find really different people who hadn't necessarily been to the same universities as people, who had no connections in the industry, but could come and inject that huge new fresh ideas and thinkings into the business. So that was on the company side. I think on the um, community side, what I realized is that the people I was surrounded with were very distinct to that kind of traditional white collar community that's right. looked after LinkedIn or that LinkedIn looks after. And so, you know, traditionally you'd have a very CV based linear career. You'd spend five, 10, 15 years in the same business. I was surrounded by people that were working in a much more fluid way of work. They were adopting, you know, freelance careers, portfolio careers. So they might be working three days somewhere, but two days they were working yep. on their own side hustle. But even when we were which in work- Which is very work, hard to show on LinkedIn. Which is impossible. Like if you're a freelancer and you've like got 40 gigs in one year, like the CV just doesn't work. Yep. And even people that were in full-time work, the people I was surrounded with were working much more on a project-by-project -project basis. Mm. And so, yeah, you could say I have said job title at said studio, but what are you actually creating behind the scenes? Yeah. So I wanted to create a different space that made it easy for the community I was surrounded with to promote themselves online, network with each other and find jobs. But I think weirdly what I've come to realize across this journey, it was also a different value set than that traditional like LinkedIn e community, like LinkedIn was built around get paid as much as humanly possible and it will build you happiness. And the ladder as and well. And the ladder. Always yeah. that kind of like keep going up, yeah. keep going up the ladder, get as much money, you know, the, the fab car and the great watch is gonna be everything. <laughs> and it also in a way made me feel like going on there that I had to be this homogenous, like white suited individual that was gonna succeed in my career. And what I've come to realize is that our community have just a different value set. Like pay is so important. Like obviously we have to put food on the table, but so too is like purpose, purpose as much as paycheck, actually enjoying the people you're working with. Yep. And you know, actually it's our differences that make us incredible. So everything we try and do is encapsulate that value set. So the dots is all about celebrating difference over homogeneity. That's my dyslexia. Homogeneity. <laughs> <laughs> Being homogenous. Um, it's all about basically doing, doing 
projects that are going to fulfill you on an emotional level, not just on a kind of, I'm going to get as paid as much as humanly possible. And weirdly, across this journey, I've realized that that's also a kind of a mindset that's being adopted by the millennial generation and Gen Z. And so what surprised me being here in the UK is a lot of our community don't even work in the creative industries. They right. just want this different way of work. They don't want to be working at PwC and selling their soul and waiting for their retirement. Right. <laughs> they want a yeah. whole new life. And that's been the magic. Because that's quite different. So most people in Australia will know mm. you from The Loop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I guess The Loop was very, and we've spoken about yeah. this before, it was very, it was design-centric. Yeah. So this is, why, why the change? Yeah, I mean, it actually just changed itself. So I kind of I have my community to thank. But, you know, it, it, the loop in Australia, I get always think is like the Dot's baby sister, yeah. uh, my first baby. And the loop was very much geared around yeah, design, creativity. And when I launched the platform here, we suddenly had this massive sign-up rate who, of people who were involved in creative process, but not necessarily on the tool. So producers, account managers, marketers, wow. people who were very much part of that process, but yeah, weren't necessarily creating in its traditional sense. Yeah. And so the community kind of led us. And so that led to the platform here. The huge difference between us and The Loop in Australia is the way the platform works is people post projects, but then tag or credit the full team around those projects. An app can go up and it'll be this is UI designer, UX designer, front end engineer, back end engineer, head of product. It can be a campaign that goes up and say this is the creative director, these are the copywriters, but this was the account manager, this was the producer. And in essence, we work a bit like a living wiki of projects and the teams behind it. And creativity is a team sport. Like you can have an incredible designer, but if they're not supported by say a brilliant front end engineer, if it's a digital product, that that, yep. that project's never gonna get off the yep. ground. Yep. And so yeah, our community kind of led the way and it's just been magic to see this huge amount of diversity in terms of the skill set kind of form around the dots. It's, it's a wonderful thing. I've heard clients talk about this a lot mm. in, in the sense that they go to LinkedIn, for example, mm. and they, they don't really know what to look for. Yeah where at least they can look on the dots, they can go, oh, that's the kind of thing I want. Yeah. And then they can start sort of digging deeper and deeper and yeah. deeper. And that's exactly how it works. People can pop in any sort of project they've any ever seen, and then they can discover the full team. But then it becomes kind of serendipity as well, because then you see what other stuff the team has done, and then right. you discover other people. And so we have now this kind of, I guess, professional graph of who's worked with who. So, and that's on a freelance level as well. So whenever you're on someone's profile, you can actually then see all the people that they've collaborated with on projects and you know the way the world's working now you know people are collaborating there's hundreds of people that people are actually have worked with on individual projects and mm. that's where the fun discoverability happens but what's been even more interesting is lots of our clients used to use us to find individuals but they're increasingly using us to find full teams right. so they'll search and they'll just hoover up a full team either to work on a, a project as a project by project basis or like someone like google is just hoovering up full teams and bringing them into <laughs> google because <laughs> it de-risks the project yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of been like the real huge evolution that happened between the loop and the dots here in the UK. With your product, I guess, mm. how, how often are you looking at the user experience and trying to, because it sounds like it, from what you've talked about, it, it grew kind of exponentially. Yeah. And then also the needs and the wants and, and everyone kind of coming, wanting or needing something different from it. Yeah, that's all we do all the time, I right. guess. So, yeah, I mean, we, we think about, 
the way we structure the team, we structure it, we call it the product team. We don't call it like engineers and designers yep. and data because actually they're intrinsically linked. So um, I have a team of obviously designers, product designers, engineers and data team. But depending on what feature we're building, there'll always be someone from data on that team, someone from front end engineering, someone from back end engineering and someone from design. And it means we've got that holistic pr- approach to everything we do in terms of the community input we do a number of things so we have we have a beta club uh with them they come into the studio they test new features we also have every month we have an uh, like an open studio event so everyone comes to the studio here and we kind of try out new ideas so we split up into groups and kind of basically co-create with our community and we do the same with our clients so every month we have a client co-creation session where we co-create with them as well and all of my engineers for example they also have to go to every sales once a, once a quarter they have to go to a sales pitch so they understand the real needs of the com- or the people right. that they're servicing yep. and they also have to come to one of our portfolio master classes so that they understand like the real I guess pain points our community have when it comes to building a community, um, their careers so we're really hands on with our community that's kind of more the I guess the quant stuff or qual I always get them mixed up quant side yeah, I used to be an economist I promise um but also we just have a huge amount of understanding in terms of the data and our community and the use cases of what they do as well so I have three people who just look at data all the time yeah. and what are people um starting to use us for what are they loving us for what are those kind of new things that are helping them with their career and that's just the mix of that quantum qual is so important you can't have one without yeah. the other I wanted to ask more about the portfolio masterclass mm. as well because to me, that seems like a, a great opportunity to kind of turn a digital thing into something more uh, tangible. How did that come about? So actually, I first did it in Australia in collaboration with um, Vivid, Vivid Sydney. And so we did like some mega masterclasses on top of the, the Museum of Contemporary Art. Yep. And then when I arrived here, I just was going to all these insanely amazing studios and thinking, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be incredible if we kind of more did a safari and we were doing the masterclasses in different businesses across London because wow. the spaces are just insane so that's kind of how it came about so the way they work they're a bit like speed recruitment I guess we have like 10 mentors that come from companies we work with and then we have around over 500 people applying for 30 spots we then curate down the list so the talent on the day is amazing the only rule we have is it has to be over 50% female in the room over 30% BAME which is black Asian minority ethnic and it basically turns into speed recruitment for juniors and funnily enough all the mentors are so amazing that we suddenly had all these freelancers trying to hack in (laughs) to get their work so you know when we did a photography masterclass they're all the picture editors of like Wired magazine and Monocle and Wallpaper so all these freelancers are trying to get in so we've now spun off a freelance speed recruitment one which is much more like speed dating where it's 30 freelancers speed pitching their books to to hiring people who are hiring freelancers i wanted to bring up the because you mm. mentioned it slightly um, and this has come up a lot with the dots the algorithm yeah because you you skew it a certain way yeah we actually skew it for more diverse talent coming higher in listings which we, scares the shit out of my ceo sometimes he's oh, like really? are we gonna get sued for positive discrimination i'm like that would be the best thing to be sued yeah. for ever <laughs> amazing press <laughs> it's like ridiculous. Um, yeah, I have a real problem because actually, 
if you looked at LinkedIn, the algorithm skews to to kind of more privileged people. So what I mean right. by that is if you go to certain universities, you come higher up in the algorithm. If you have bigger networks to begin with, you yeah. come higher up in the algorithm. So we kind of take a, the opposite approach. So we have an in-house curation team and actually Brendan who leads my in-house curation team used to be the editor of Desktop Magazine, oh, um, okay. Brendan McKnight. Yep. Uh, and then he went on to Frankie and um, Smith Journal. So I tried to hire Brendan, this is a total side note, I tried to hire Brendan while I was at the loop, he turned me down and then I finally got him for the dots, which <laughs> is great, amazing. So we have an in-house curation team who go through all the new profiles that sign up to the site, all the new projects get um, put up on the platform and we have a curation rule that we always have to feature over 50% female, over 30% BAME. And the reason we did that is actually when I started the dots here in London, we had um, we skewed more male. And the reason I've come to realize is actually, and these are always averages, men are, tend to be better at promoting themselves than women are. So we put in place this rule and then suddenly the demographic of sign-ups changed overnight. It was literally like, again, you can see it, you can be it. Mm. Um, so we, we, are, we do over-index the other way now. So our community is 68% female, 31% BAME, 16% LGBT. But all of that curation then feeds into the algorithm because the way it works is that the people who are curated come higher, but also the people that have been curated who they've worked with come higher so it helps build different ecosystem when you're searching the platform other things we did is we removed the ability to be able to search for people by university so right. i mean like you know we can end up with teams that reflect society but we all went to like really great universities that's not real <laughs> diversity so huge problem here in the uk is is socioeconomic movement so we removed uh, actually it was off the back of one of our clients just started searching for oxford i was like i don't think so <laughs> uh, other things we do is we do massive takeovers so for international women's day we only for a whole week we only featured women on the platform projects created by women we did the same for pride so lgbt yep. takeover um, same for Black History Month, complete for the whole month, we only feature black talent, project created by black talent. And all of that feeds into the algorithm, yeah. which is kind of magic. What, magic I, lo what I love see. about it is you've been really um, transparent about yeah. it as well. And I, I guess you need to be because mm. other, you're talking about algorithm. But there, there has been some backlash, hasn't mm. there? Because I remember one tweet storm yeah. in particular. Yeah. How have you dealt with that? Oh, do you know what? It's the... the Backlash is, you know, we've had one instant and actually my CRO, bless him, said Pip, in this whole time we've had one time when it was a backlash. Do you know what? Weirdly for me, it was probably the worst day I've had at the dots, to be honest, because you pour your heart, body and soul into creating something that has positive yeah. change and then, and then you have a backlash. So just in full transparency, we have this amazing feature, which is basically a blind recruitment tool. So what it does is when our clients are searching the platform, they can move into blind recruitment browsing mode. So it takes out anything that could bias someone's decision. Mm -hmm. So profile image, first name, last name, educational background, because the reality is we're all biased. The fact that the dots is 68% female is absolutely my yeah. bias. Um, <laughs> and you know, you can make snap judgments on who to email just like that. So yep. if someone went to Oxford over a university you've never heard of, boom, you, yep. you, people are getting contact. There's research that if you're Mark, if you're called Mark over Mohammed, you're four times more likely to get wow. a 
um, someone contacting you. So all these biases exist. So there's loads of businesses like the BBC now that have blind recruitment um, policies where you have to search for platforms in blind recruitment mode. Oh, wow. um, so we launched the feature and it was mass- just so much lovely um, support from our community, but there was a bit of a backlash um, in terms of some minority communities feel like, and I completely understand this, that yes, that you can find someone, but what if you then go into an organization and that organization is still biased? And I can totally, totally understand that that must be the most horrific, horrific thing to go through. But what was lovely about that process is, and I sat down with the community and we spoke about it. And once we spoke about it and we understood each, each other's kind of perspectives, we were able to kind of understand why we were doing it and Mm. actually when I showed them the feature they understood that once you start contacting someone you can see someone's information so yeah it's one of those things where I guess I'm you know we're we're going to have points where what we do is quite controversial but I I don't really care in in some ways because I I all I care about is that we're giving access to the creative industries to people and there are so many amazing diversity organizations that are doing work at helping businesses become more inclusive. And that's not where we come in. Where we come in is helping talent get work. And then it's up to them if they want to stay in those businesses or join those businesses. And I see myself, my role as democratizing the creative industries. And there are just hundreds of amazing organizations who are helping trying to fix the more prolific problems that can happen in organizations when it comes to... to actually retaining talent which is a really hard hard thing to solve as well mm. no I, I mean i think it's really wonderful that I, the, mm. the blind thing makes so much sense mm. and i can completely ha- see how it would work so with another part of the dots that seems to have become really relevant in the last probably couple of years mm. you've started talking much more about kind of automation artificial intelligence all that coming in yeah. how is the dots kind of trying to solve that i guess well, I get really excited about the future because <laughs> um, I guess, you know, there are three and I do a lot of work in terms of, um, yeah, automation and what the future of work is. And, you know, there's three things machines don't do very well. They don't have empathy. Yep. Uh, they don't have common sense and they can't mimic that human capability to be creative. And when I use creativity, I do use it in its broadest yeah, sense yeah. of the word. I mean, I had, a, funnily enough, a debate with someone on stage at a conference recently, and they were talking about the Christie's painting that sold for like 400,000, yep. uh, which was a, you know, a machine-generated painting. But the reality is it was still human that had to come up with the idea to program the machine to paint that painting. Yeah. And so the tools we're going to use are going to change, but that essence of creating something that is a very human trait and I guess that's why I'm so excited about the community we look after because you know if you look at the kind of more traditional LinkedIn community that's a lot of the roles that are going to be automated over the next 5, 10, 15 years and actually there's a brilliant website here in the UK if you go to the BBC website you can put in your job title it says how quickly you're going to be automated oh, wow. <laughs> but everyone listening you're fine <laughs> <laughs> but again it doesn't mean that the tools we use or the way you know the industry of structures isn't going to change but that essence of being creative and coming up with creative mm. ideas is is one of the last things that will go. And when that goes, that's a whole different other world. Yeah. Well, we're all cattle then, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> the, um, so I guess the thing I've always been confused about is, you know, everyone keeps on talking about like, well, 
you know, a lot of people will move more into the creative fields. Mm. Uh, but is there going to... Because it doesn't feel like the creative fields are growing incredibly quickly as opposed to how quickly truck drivers may be out of a job. Yeah, it depends what you define as the creative industry. So we very much see technology as part of the creative industry. Yeah. So here in the UK, the creative industries has grown at double the, the industry rate. I think if you look at kind of different silos it depends i mean we're seeing the complete i guess the breakdown of advertising here in the uk is really interesting so you know we're looking at things like the rise of collectives so it's not people who worked in creative industry or the the advertising that are necessarily being effective it's the structure of how it's being created so something really excites me here is yeah collective mentality that's happening in in the uk which is very well structured so you've got businesses where they're ex-agency they're say three to five people from different roles so there'll be like creative strategy account management planning who have a business that they work together but then they've got a kind of say 200 freelancers they draw on for different projects and this is a massive trend we see here which really excites me because you know traditionally the in the agency model said oh we'll, we'll always have people that will go sort of out of agency, they'll always come back because we have the structures in place. But actually, the structures that are now in place of these collectives are much more kind mm. of um, well managed. And so I get really excited that because you're kind of cutting out the middle person, you know, you're cutting out the sorrels of the world, <laughs> and you're going straight from brands down to the collective. And I, I get really, I get excited about that. So it's, it's, you know, the the again, the models are changing. I love how the UK brands are much more open than I found when I was in Australia, but I did leave five years ago to go direct to smaller collectives than they were, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, which is great. It's always about managing that risk, though, isn't it? uh, I think think many of the big clients still see going to a big agency as barely risk-free because they're kind of transferring the risk, I guess, where if they have to kind of then diversify the risk amongst smaller teams... Well, the interesting thing is the teams aren't that small because they're such mega collectives. Sure. So, yeah, we're definitely seeing that more of that appetite for risk um, going to a collective. But then they look at the collective and they're saying, well, these are the people we would have had in the agency. And yep. actually, they're 200 people. I mean, that's a decent sized agency. Granted, none of them are full time as they're kind of freelancing. So, yeah, I don't think I think the brands are sort of going, well, you know, it's not that risky because it's actually the same people we'd have in the agency Mm. and they're very well organized and yeah I mean you know you've got brands like Nike Google who are all all doing that at the moment instead of necessarily going through the traditional agencies which I think is great (laughs) with with your um, particular career I mean Mm. it seems like it because your team's much bigger now yeah and how has your career changed in the sense of like taking on the kind of the management role I guess Yeah, I think um, one of the best things I ever did when I left the loop actually was I had a 360 review done on myself, which I know is such a corporate thing to do, but I'm so glad I did it where one of my advisors interviewed everyone at the loop and it was a three-page document. What are you good at? What are you not good at? (laughs) And learnings from the loop for the dots. And I think I learned a lot about myself as a leader through that process that I'm actually quite a natural good leader, but then to lean into that and to definitely delegate the things that I'm not so good at. So in Australia, I used to take on more of like the COO leadership roles. So shareholder management, the real day-to-day legal accounting, that's not my forte. (laughs) So here I've got the most incredible COO that looks after that side where I can really lean into 
looking after my team who are essentially like my family and making sure they're happy. So things we've done here is we work off something called OKRs, not I KPIs. To talk to you about this. I <laughs> KPIs. love OKRs. I'm always talking about it. And oh, anyone who will listen, I will talk about OKRs. So like literally they transformed because yeah. the problem with KPIs is they have to be achievable. Yep. And you have no idea when you're building something new what is achievable. So yep. you either set them too low, which means you don't ever get that like massive growth, but everyone feels good because you may hit your KPIs, or you set them too high and it demoralizes everyone. Yep. And then, then you have to use them as a performance tool, which is so unfair when you still don't know where you're necessarily going or how fast you're going. So yeah, we introduced... And it's all OKRs. top down as well. The thing I found about KPIs is... It was as a, a manager or a leader, yeah. you you owned the KPIs for everyone. Yeah. Where then, as soon as we swapped to OKRs, everyone everyone owned their OKR. Hundred yeah. percent. And also, I love that they can question yes. what what the company ones are because you set the company ones, yeah. and it was just like it's amazing. Like, really, should we be doing that? And actually, it's so valuable getting in all of that input. So, in terms of team management, like my um, one of my key results is ten out of ten happiness for my team. Right. Um, so it sounds really airy fairy. <laughs> but um, how is that measured? It's big, the reality is, is happy team a productive team. Yeah. And when people are enjoying and they're engaged and they love it. And so, so yeah, the way we measure it is every quarter I send an anonymous survey to the team and I ask them, it's kind of some basic questions like how happy are you coming to work? One yeah. to 10, what do you love about working at the dots? And kind of three similar-ish questions. How can we improve the office to make you happier? How can we improve the product to make you happier? And what would you do? if you're a CEO. And it's a bit like an exit interview, but you do it before <laughs> <laughs> you exit or before anyone exits. And what I love about happiness is that happiness means different things to different people at different times. So it's kind of that catch-all phrase. Um, so sometimes it can be someone's pay. They might be looking for a pay rise. That's one one measure but other times it can be the working environment so um, some of my engineers prefer being in this tiny little corner because they they prefer not having the distraction of an open studio I didn't yeah. know that unless I found out about it in the survey another interesting one is I got called out because we had flexible working for mums at the dots but we didn't have it for dads right and I, I I just didn't think like you just I guess that's your biases again kicking in I was like of course like dad should have it nothing's ever going to change if dads aren't taking responsibility too and so that was a real wake-up call for me where then obviously we implemented flexible working for mums and dads so those kind of things get picked up in this survey and because it's completely anonymous people are like proper honest <laughs> 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 so I have to do it on a weekend over a glass of wine. <laughs> um, but off the back of that, that means I've had very little churn. The team, you know, enjoy coming to work every day. I feel um, like they're a part of something and they, yeah. they, can, they can make a change. And yeah. it's that purpose thing that you talked about before. Yeah, and it's funny how things are so easy to fix when you know what the problem is. Yes. So, you know, when we first scaled... What the big kind of themes, and there's always themes every quarter, was that people, everyone was starting to work in silos more and people weren't really knowing what each other were doing because we'd suddenly got bigger. And so we did two really simple things. We do stand up uh, whips on Friday, work in progress on Friday, where everyone stood up and each team presents what they're doing that week. And we also now do musical chairs every quarter. So right. people get up and sit in a different area every quarter based on the OKRs, yeah, so yeah. structure of the OKRs. And it meant that all the cliques broke down because you're always sitting next to someone new and getting new. And they're two really simple fixes. I wouldn't have known to think about those fixes if I didn't know what the problem was. Mm. And I think that's a lot of the time 
the bigger problem is things get spoken about kind of around water coolers. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But don't actually, unless you know the root cause, you can't fix it in an why, effective why way. Why the whips on a Friday? Because a lot of people do whips on a Monday. We do both. Right. So we do Mondays, we do stand up first thing on Monday. So yep. that's all about the data and the performance of the week before and the kind of actual what our targets are for that week. And then on Friday, it's each team presenting what they did that week. Um, so, and then we do Friday thank yous. So uh, it's everyone on the team has to thank someone else for something, something they, they did. did. And it's actually everyone's favorite day. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's really, it sounds so soppy. But what I love about it is it's a, a lot of the time it's someone who's really quiet who's just been working their ass off that I wouldn't necessarily notice what they'd done that week. Yep. So it enables, you know, me to really or us to acknowledge amazing people without you know always having to be across what everyone's doing because it really really jumps into the yeah i mean it enables the introverts to to get a voice yeah yeah and they get and get the praise they deserve and it's just yeah it's that magical i mean we're so terrible because we're only meant to thank one person i think we all think about (laughs) four people every time ends ends Um, with a But it's just such a lovely way to go home at the end of the day. And, and the only rule is they can't thank me. So it has to be other people because that would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> really awkward. <laughs> How do you keep on top of all this stuff? I, I know from when we've talked in the past, mm. you're, you're obsessed about learning mm. and, and you're kind of constantly kind of like taking stuff in. How, how, do, you, how do you find the time firstly to do that? And how, how do you do it? Uh, so for me, audiobooks, 100%. I think, well, I mean, it's, partly a necessity because my dyslexia just reading isn't practical because yep. my reading speed's so slow um the great thing about audiobooks i can do it everywhere so yep. you know i will cycle to work i've got this amazing speaker that sits so we've got these um what they, they they're like these free bikes and not free but these bikes you can pick up all over london and i'll just pick it up and i'll put my speaker on the front and i'll listen to books on the way to work or i'll walk to work and yep. listen to books whenever i'm commuting to meetings i'm listening to books so i've just integrated it into my day life because I tried to do that, like sit down and do an hour, but my life or my work is so varied that, mm. that having that stable point is always booked by something else comes up as a priority. So it was literally just that conscious effort to put it into my routine and that's my commutes and then going to client meetings. And then on Saturdays, I always do a big walk listening to a workbook. And it's just magical because you're constantly, I guess, learning, but I, in a way that makes makes it that it doesn't feel like a chore and I guess I'm just generally interested and you know the brilliant thing about London as well is there's so many talks and there's so many there's yep. just so much going on so it's also the privilege of being able to go go to all of that and literally just learn from the best in the business and the other way I learn actually is I'm part of two incredible networks for founders um, and learning from each other because I think um, you know some of the challenges we face are very specific to founders. Um, so I've just come back actually from a founders conference where everyone um, hosts sessions on things they're passionate about. So, you know, one oh, session wow. can be about DNI, which are, you know, diversity and inclusion. One session can be around putting together a share option plan. One can be like the process of interviewing. One, one can be, I'm being pushed out by my co-founder. I mean, it's really deep stuff. And that's been a magical experience or ecosystem for me to tap into here in the UK. 
with the audiobooks, because mm. I think you actually got me into audiobooks. Yeah, yeah, amazing. How, how fast are you listening to now? Oh, you see, I do on normal speed. I do? Yeah, I do on normal speed. Only because, like, I literally I tried to do it faster, but when you're cycling and doing it faster, it was just not working. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was missing too much because you were literally having to concentrate yeah. on lights and everything like that. I love the idea of going faster, and I, I love podcasts as well, but because it's in my commute, I felt that I missed things <laughs> if it was in my commute. <laughs> like missing trains to try to listen to stuff <laughs> it's it's always a, a a bit of a joke between me and my co-host flynn just about how fast we're getting and but it does reach a point where you you start forgetting like it, the, the fast becomes more important than actually retaining the knowledge yeah. i guess and one thing i would kind of want to finish with and we're, we're coming unfortunately to the end of time but if you had advice for a creative that's been in in a role say maybe five years in australia maybe and they're looking at that future and they're looking at like automation and they're looking at more creative jobs kind of appearing and more people coming into the creative industries. What could they do? And, I, and I, this is coming from a place because I guess a couple of years ago we were told like everyone needs to code mm. and now we're kind of tired. Oh, don't worry about coding. You know, the, the machines will do that. So what would you suggest that they kind of focus on? Yeah, I mean, the honest truth is none of us really know what's going to happen. But I think the most important thing is embracing the creativity and not necessarily the tools I think you know that I I just that whole everyone's got a code for me just gets my <laughs> knuckles up so right <laughs> like here here in the UK there's this obsession about what they call STEM yes. and you know I'm a big advocate for STEAM which is putting the art and technology and by art creativity and I think, you know, it is now about continuously learning and tools will change. Mm. But it is that insatiable appetite to be curious. But that's why we became creatives in the first place. So, yeah. you know, that's fun. There's something that I've, I've kind of, a principle I've fallen in love with when it comes to a career, which is itiagi or itia. It's a Japanese philosophy. That was my dyslexia. I have no idea how to pronounce it. But it's about finding that spot of what you love, what you're good at, what you get paid for, which was the traditional way of looking at a mm. career. But it actually adds what the world needs into it. And it's that purpose into it. And it's finding that magic spot in the middle. And I think the world is a little crazy right now on so many levels. I mean, I'm, we're living through <laughs> Brexit here in the UK, yes. which is one of the most mental things about. to have, which you can't <laughs> talk about. But I think, I think as a creator, we, we have the tools or we have the ability to make things better. Mm. And I think it's time for us to start leaning into that. And I think that's where you do find true happiness in your career and you know that can manifest itself in so many different ways here in the uk there's brilliant programs like something called zinc vc which put together a designer a front-end engineer a back-end engineer and kind of like a producer project manager and they try and solve the world's biggest problems Love um, it. and it's amazing so their last and um, their first cohort was about female empowerment their next cohort was around how do we not leave people behind due to automation their mm. next cohort is um how do we help the elderly li live better lives because we're living for longer but it's actually worse so horrible at the end so each cohort is around improving that and i think i think that's the most magical thing about being a creative there's all these opportunities for us to do these things and be part of this kind of movement i guess i think my advice would be 
don't worry about automation. What will, what will happen will happen. Go and go and worry about the world um, because the world's got problems and those problems aren't going away anytime soon. <laughs> and uh, if we can all work on those problems together, and I think also it is the time to start businesses and and you know to if I, I mean I'm a non-tech tech founder who started a tech business, so if I can do it, anyone can do it. So I think go find what 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 is that problem that is keeping you up at night and go solve it. It would be my advice. What an amazing place to leave it. <laughs> Let's get rid of all those extra questions I had. <laughs> so where can people find out more about you? Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah, just search the dots. I hope I'm at the front top of search results in Australia. <laughs> I don't Wikipedia know. Wikipedia as well. Oh, God, yeah. That's <laughs> except don't believe the age, um, which I think is so funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, just um, just search the dots. We do have an app, but I don't we, I don't think we're in the Australian app store yet, which is terrible. So we will be soon. It's uh, Euro- European at the moment. And we we didn't get to talk about it, but uh, expanding. Yeah, so I mean, right now it's really focused on the UK. So a lot of our community are actually based outside of the UK, but it's really nailing the UK market. The, the reason, well, actually more the London market, because we think about. Uh, no collar clusters in cities because yep. different cities are very different <laughs> so here it's about really getting the, i mean there's three million people in the no collar market here in in london which is mental mm. so it's nailing here and in about eight to 12 months raising another round to start expanding internationally which will be really wow. fun and where next we're not sure to be honest because we've got a huge community outside or within europe but europe's so so kind of fragmented i guess you know Hamburg and Berlin are just completely different places. The only other place that brings all the industries together is Paris, potentially. But then, you know, there's there's the US. Um, I'll have to do it after Trump gets voted out, though. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. You can find this episode and more at ozdesignradio.com and you can also follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, at ozdesignradio. Thank you so much for taking the time. Amazing. No, it's really fun. <laughs>